Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. Julia is an award-winning writer, best-selling author, artist, and one of the most beloved teachers in the world of how to live a creative life. She has written more than 30 books, including her perennial bestseller on the creative process, The Artist's Way. Today, we will explore her latest book, It's Never Too Late to Begin Again, Discovering Creativity and Meaning at Midlife and Beyond. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, I, for one, thank you for this book. The title alone is inspiring, although I'm probably never going to retire. But some 10,000 people a day do retire in this country. And I think finding meaning in one's life is challenging at any time. So tell me why you think that reconnecting with one's creativity is the answer to a good retirement. Well, I think that when people retire, they are often at wit's end about what to do next. They may have had a dream of, when I retire, I will try X. But then when they get to retirement, they find themselves stymied uh, and unable to go forward. Uh, And I found uh, over my years of teaching that my most poignant students were those who were newly retired uh, and searching uh, for the path for what to do next. Well, certainly finding meaning in one's life is just so challenging at any time, but particularly after retirement. Um, How did you come up with the process that you put forward in your book? Well, I've been teaching uh, for 30 years, uh, and I found myself uh, putting forward ideas uh, that I thought would help people, uh, and I found uh, that it was doing the uh, basic artist's way template that led me uh, into steps uh, to help people with retirement. And the the basic artist's way template um, starts with morning pages. How did you actually develop that approach? Well, morning pages came to me, I would say, quite bluntly as inspiration. Uh, I was a Hollywood screenwriter, uh, and I had a movie for John Voight, Uh, that he went from calling it brilliant to suddenly I couldn't find him on the phone. Uh, And I retired to a town called Taos, New Mexico, which is a little mountain community. Uh, And I lived in a little adobe house at the end of a dirt road. And I would get up every morning uh, and I would stare at the Taos Mountain, which was a spiritual mountain. Uh, And I would think, what should I do next? And I would think, well, I'll just try writing a little bit. 
uh, and I began writing three pages of morning writing every morning. Uh, and I found when I did that I was led uh, into sort of new adventures uh, and new ways of looking at things. Uh, and so I thought, there's something to this morning pages. Uh, and that became the beginning of my artist way teaching. Now, you you say that it should be sort of stream of consciousness. Is there something that you use to pump prime uh, this flow of words? No, actually, I find that when I say to people, I want you to write three pages of stream of consciousness, that very often <coughs> they find the first page and a half pretty easy. And then they bump into an invisible wall. Uh, and I say, now keep writing. Uh, and when they keep writing, uh, they discover what I call pay dirt. Uh, and they begin to uh, sort of dig more deeply into their psyches. I've been trying this practice, actually, since I started reading this book in prepara preparation for our interview. And I have to say, I found it amazing. Um, so you you started this in your original book, The Artist's Way. How how many years ago was that? I published The Artist's Way in 1992, uh, and since publishing it, four million people have worked with the book. So that's uh, quite a long time and quite a large audience of people who were willing to experiment with the tools. How does this book differ from the original Artist's Way program? Well, when I wrote The Artist's Way, uh, I found myself introducing people to concepts that I felt would be useful to them. So we, we had... Uh, We had people uh, digging into their, uh, their own consciousness. Uh, and when I wrote this book, I thought, well, I think we should talk about some concepts that haven't been dealt with in the artist's way. For example, giddiness. Uh, very often when people retire, they experience a sense of giddiness, and they don't know quite where to go next. Uh, and I found uh, that I, I wanted to explore uh, a sense of now what. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the um, next tools that you introduce in the book is called The Artist's Date. I just love that. Explain that to our readers, uh, listeners, please. Well, when I wrote The Artist's Way, I said there's two basic tools, uh, and they are morning pages, which are three pages of longhand morning writing about absolutely anything, and you do that every day. And then the second tool was something that I called The Artist's Date, uh, and it was as though when we did uh, morning pages, we told the universe what we liked. And then when we went on an artist date, which was a once a week, 
solo expedition to do something that was fun or interesting, uh, we began uh, to sort of fill our souls. Uh, And I found that when people did artist dates, they often came back and said, oh, now I get it, Uh, that they had a sense of the um, benevolence of the universe that came to them from doing something uh, as simple as assigned fun. And I also found uh, that when I assigned the tools, uh, people would eagerly undertake the work of the morning pages, but they would find themselves balking uh, at trying out a state. And I I think that it was because they intuitively sensed that if they took an artist date, uh, their consciousness was going to contact them with a lot of dreams. Mm-hmm. Give us some examples of artist dates. Well, uh, I live in Santa Fe, so I might go to the Georgia O'Keeffe Museum. I'm going to try and stop by there later this afternoon. Uh, Another thing you could do is uh, you could go to a glass blowing studio and find yourself making paperweights. Uh, Or you could go simply to a floral shop uh, and find yourself enjoying the the many different kinds of flora. Uh, I love going for children's bookstores. Uh, for artist dates because I find that a children's book usually has just about the amount of information you want <laughs> on any new topic. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, a digestible bite. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. Well, one of the other things that I loved about uh, the the process were the questions, the the tasks that you assigned. Uh, Let's explain that this book is actually intended to be um, a 12-week process, and Julia gives you tasks to fulfill over each week and then to review your progress um, at the end of each week. So you're you're counting, uh, you're holding people accountable for uh, adhering or not adhering to the process. I, I can sense the teacher, the experienced teacher behind all this. Thank you very much. Yes, I, I do think this book reflects the 30 years of teaching. It certainly does. The, the um, idea of dividing... Oh, so let's get on to the next element, which is the memoir. Tell us about that. Well, a lot of times when I say to people, uh, now I want you to look back over your life for clues as to what you want to do next, people will say, Julia, my life was so boring. And I'll say, I don't think so. Uh, I want you to try writing a memoir. Uh, And so uh, I will have 10 questions at the end of each week, uh, at the end of the essay on memoir. Uh, and they are coaxing uh, people uh, to try and recall simple things like uh, you divide uh, your age by 12 
and then you go forward and you say, well, what was the smell that was particularly uh, potent for you during this period? Ah, Julia, we're going to have to take a break now, but then we will be right back and pick up where we left off. We're speaking with Julia Cameron about her book, It's Never Too Late to Begin Again. Julia, we were talking about writing the memoir and dividing our life into, uh, our age into 12, and then reviewing each chunk of 12 per week, so going sequentially uh, through your life. Um, I found that that made it a much more manageable task than sitting in front of the, the, the computer or a piece of paper. Oh, and, and you're, you're a great enthusiast of writing longhand. Why is that? Well, one of the things we've discovered, uh, courtesy of UCLA, is that when you write longhand, you open up far more neural pathways. Uh, and so uh, I ask people to write longhand because they will have a greater sense of discovery. Uh, and I find that when people write on the computer, uh, it's as if they're in a car going 75 miles an hour and they're whizzing along the freeway and they go, oh, whoops, was that my exit? <laughs> uh, and then when I ask them to write longhand, it's as if they're going about 30 miles an hour. Uh, and they're going along the freeway, and they go, oh, here comes my exit. Oh, look, a convenience store. <laughs> right. So that that makes it um, much more human. It, it's kind of like the, the slow writing movement, like the slow eating movement. Um, now, what do you say to people whose childhood was very traumatic and they just don't want to revisit it? I, I coax them. I say, now, amidst all the trauma, uh, there was also good things. So what I want you to do is to recall both. Uh, and I find uh, that... Actually, people who have traumatic childhoods have more of a desire to write the memoir, mm -hmm. uh, that they want to uh, sort of even up the score. Uh, and so uh, they are, in effect, tattling. Uh, and when they tattle on the trauma in their childhoods, uh, they find freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting relationship between the pages and the memoir. How does that work? Well, when you write pages, you're dealing with your current life. Uh, so you are writing, uh, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, this is what I want more of, this is what I want less of. Uh, and you're directly addressing the present tense part of your life. When you write the memoir, you're casting back uh, over uh, life that has been lived. Uh, and uh, I find uh, that the two tools work in conjunction. Uh, what happens with uh, the morning pages 
is that you are in effect miniaturizing your sensor uh, because there's no wrong way to do morning pages, uh, but your sensor, your inner critic, will perk up and say, oh, Miriam, you're being so negative. <laughs> uh, and you say to your sensor, thank you for sharing. <laughs> and you keep right on writing. Uh, and that process of miniaturizing the sensor is something that translates over to writing the memoir. So uh, uh, you start writing the memoir, your sensor perks up and starts criticizing you, and you say to your sensor, thank you for sharing, but I think I'm going to just keep writing. Mm-hmm. There was an interesting case study that you give, and you throughout the book, you give a lot of examples of your students from... Uh, times past going through this process, which is really very helpful in illuminating how you can use it for yourself. And apropos of the traumatic childhood, you had one student who was really reluctant to revisit her childhood. And you said, go ahead and then promise me that you'll get a therapist if you need it. Right. Um, One of the things uh, that I've found uh, is that uh, people with an incest background uh, may find it threatening to try writing about it. Uh, And I coax them, oh, please try, just give it a little try. Uh, And they may find themselves nervous. And I say to them, well, get some support for yourself then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do keep doing the process. Right. And she did find it actually the, the combination of writing it and getting that anger out of it. It's it's kind of like self-psychoanalysis, and you, you do invoke Jung every so often. Well, what I say uh, is that I, I don't think the book uh, is therapy per se, but it is therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I find that when people are willing uh, to, to start digging into their past, uh, they discover all sorts of treasures. Uh, they, they learn, uh, oh, when I was 12, I loved line drawing. Gee, maybe I can try a little line drawing now. Mm-hmm. I should point out that you describe many, many different ways in the book of expressing creativity. It doesn't have to be writing or painting. It can be baking. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, what we're after is we want people to realize uh, that whatever form it, their expression takes, uh, it, it can be viewed as creative. Uh, and I think uh, we have people redecorating their houses, moving their furniture, uh, repainting a kitchen chair a more vivid color. Uh, we have people adding window boxes. Uh, we have uh, people say, gee, I wish I had a pet. Uh, and having a pet can be a very potent form of healing. Mm-hmm. 
So this isn't just about being creative. Uh, this is actually about living well beyond uh, retirement or, you know, as you, as you move into the next phase of your life. Yes, what I say is that uh, we're practicing creativity uh, and that our life, in effect, becomes our work of art. That's like what Don Miguel Ruiz uh, would say, that you are the artist of your life. Yes, exactly. Um, Now, do you think that everybody can be creative? What are the biggest blocks to creativity? Okay, so you're asking several questions at once. Right, take them Uh, one at a time. First question, do I think everyone is creative? And the answer is yes, I do. Uh, I have never taught a student who didn't have some form of creativity. Uh, So I think, yes, everyone is creative, and we all have uh, what you might want to call an inner child uh, that's longing to play. Uh, So uh, the most common blocks to creativity uh, tend to be a sense of fear. Uh, We have uh, a mythology in our country uh, that artists are fearless and they're born knowing that they're artists. And so then if I say, well, you feel some fear, does that mean you're not an artist? And the answer is no, artists are people who have learned to live through their fears. Mm. Uh, And uh, we don't... uh, we don't necessarily have artists who are born knowing they are artists. We ha- may have people who realize far later than birth uh, that they have a creative yearning. I just want to give a shout out to uh, the quotes that you pepper throughout the book. They are so inspiring. Um, just, just opening the book at random. Dreams are today's answers to tomorrow's questions from Edgar Cayce. Or, um, it's a happiness to wonder, it's a happiness to dream, Edgar Allan Poe. And nothing diminishes anxiety faster than action. Um, were these the fruits of your many years of reading? Yes, uh, I found uh, that, there, uh, that there were many times when I would be reading along and I would suddenly hit what I call pay dirt, uh, it would be a wonderful uh, expression. Uh, is not life a hundred times too short for us to bore ourselves? Mm. Uh, and <laughs> Say that again. That's wonderful. Is not life a hundred times too short for us to bore ourselves? Who said that? Nietzsche. Wow. So uh, I found uh, that uh, a a most divergent uh, group of people uh, all had something to say about creativity. Indeed, indeed. One of my favorites that that I I, uh, am going to plagiarize is we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark, the real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. And that was Plato. That was such a surprise. Right. It's like 
Thank you for sharing, Plato. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, getting back to the inner child and fear, um, ah, I see we're coming up to the break shortly, so I don't want to launch a really big question. In fact, I'm going to read um, another, oh, yes, the uh, quote for your title actually is from George Eliot, the, the delightful female writer who wrote, it is never too late to be what you might have been. And that, that uh, resonates so much with me, Julia. It's never too late to begin again, because it, as we age, uh, we, we feel it's all behind us. And your book really is a message to all of us that it's never too late. You know, I really hope people take that message on board because in our society, particularly in urban society, people tend to define themselves by what they do, by their work. So when they retire, they suddenly feel unseen and replaceable. In fact, I interviewed Bill Thomas last week about exactly this subject. How does this perception impede rediscovering our creativity? How do you best overcome it? Well, I think this is where we, I sound a little bit like a fanatic uh, because I say start writing morning pages. Uh, and when people write morning pages, uh, they discover that they have many interesting thoughts and ideas, uh, and they begin to become fascinated by themselves. Huh. Uh, I, I think you've probably discovered this already if you've been working with them a little bit, uh-huh. uh, that what they do uh, is they cause you to fall in love with yourself. Uh, and when you fall in love with yourself, you become again quite visible. Uh, and uh, so I think uh, that morning pages are sort of the, the greased slide to visibility. They do combine very well with the, the other tools, the artist's um, date, which has you really pamper yourself, do something just for you. And it's something that you do alone just for you. Um, how do people react to that when they have, say, a spouse at home and they're feeling that uh, they really shouldn't be taking time for themselves? Well, what I do is tell them to tell their spouse, you don't understand, dear, this is an assignment. <laughs> uh, and when, uh, when the tasks are seen as part of a course uh, and uh, that it's an assignment of the course to go alone, that goes a, lot, uh, a long way toward dismantling codependency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I often think that my books are a course in radical withdrawal. <laughs> radical withdrawal from codependency. Yes, exactly. Very good. And, and radical discovery of oneself. Now, you talk about finding little luxuries. What, what constitute a luxury? Why is it important to include them in our lives? Well, I think uh, that when we have a sense of luxury, 
uh, we have a sense of excitement. Uh, and so I will say, just do something small. Uh, for example, uh, raspberries are three ninety nine a package. And you, let's say you love raspberries, and you frequently don't allow yourself to buy them, uh, even though they're quite affordable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I say, no, 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 I want you to, to lean into your sense of luxury, people say, I bought some raspberries, and it was remarkable <laughs> how cheerful they made me feel. Yes. And they can be little luxuries that just restore your, your joy in life. Right. Uh, I think uh, that a lot of times when people want to work on their creativity, they think they have to do something large and dramatic. Uh, and what I say is, do something small. Do something little. Do something that sort of cheers you up uh, in a very uh, in a in a very delightful way. Mm. Yes, this gradual approach is something that you echo throughout the book as you encourage people to take steps. You are actually addressing many of the emotional conditions that people feel when they retire, feelings of disconnect, feelings of uselessness, feelings of, of loss of meaning in their lives. What is well, the most um, helpful thing that you have found for people looking for meaning? All right, again, here we go. We're, we're being fanatics. We say, <laughs> morning pages. We say, do morning pages. They will connect you to a sense of meaning. Uh, and what I find uh, is that when people do morning pages and they start to fall in love with themselves again, uh, that they have a heightened sense of adventure. Uh, and many times uh, people who retire say, I have all these vast savannas of time and nothing to do in it, and I'm worried. And I say, well, if you do morning pages, you're beginning to put structure into your life because people lose their structure when they lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say to them, now, I want you to write morning pages every day, uh, and it begins uh, to become something uh, that gives them a, a sense of safety. Right. You also are a big proponent of taking a walk. Well, this is something that I find. Uh, I was When I wrote The Artist's Way, it was 1992, and I wrote Take... Uh, do morning pages, take artist dates, and then all the way in week 12, the very last week of the course, I said, P.S. exercise. (laughs) So in the teaching that I've done in the years since then, I've found out that exercise is a much more uh, important component of the creative awakening than I had realized. So I assign people two 20-minute walks, one, twice a week, 
take yourself out for a walk. And what I find happens is that when people are walking, they integrate the insights, the intuitions, the hunches, uh, the breakthroughs of the other two tools. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded of a technique that Donna Eden, who is the uh, guru of energy medicine, uh, she does something called a cross crawl, which is essentially walking or marching. And that realigns the energy flow in the body. So I can understand how energetically how that would be very effective. Yes. Yeah. So... um, you take a walk in the woods with your little pet. What is the importance of pets to people? Well, I find uh, that they need a, a sense of unconditional love. Uh, that they uh, people go into retirement uh, and they start to sort of castigate themselves. Oh, stop procrastinating! You're so lazy. Uh, they uh, they sort of strike out at themselves, mm-hmm. and when you have a pet, uh, you have uh, a little being uh, that regards you with unconditional love. Uh, and we often hear the expression, "Be the man your pet thinks you are." <laughs> so, uh, if you if you acquire a pet. Uh, you you acquire uh, a sense of unconditional love, a, a, a sense of adventure, uh, a, a sense of um, happiness, I would say. Right. And it certainly gets you out walking. Yes, and it gets you on your walk. Mm-hmm. So um, you as I mentioned, give a lot of case studies or or anecdotes in your book about students. Was there a particular um, creative recovery that stood out for you? You mean uh, go through the book and tell you which one was the one that lit you up the most? Actually, the one that I found very affecting was the story of your own father and the house. My father was an advertising copywriter, uh, and during his career, he was extremely busy and stressed. When he retired, he began bird watching, uh, and he uh, would spot an egret. Uh, he would he would spot a scarlet tanager. Uh, he would he would spot a bird. Uh, and he would feel a sense of delight uh, in the uh, just in in the identifying of the bird. Uh, and what I found was that I began to collect Audubon prints uh, of the birds that my father loved. Uh, and he would. Uh, he moved from a boat in Florida where he lived on board uh, to a lagoon in Chicago, uh, a, a lagoon about 30 miles outside of town, where he would uh, watch for, for special birds. Uh, and I would go to visit him 
uh, and he would say, oh, look, and I would look and there would be an egret. <laughs> Didn't he build a house for himself? Yes, this is, uh, my father uh, designed and built a house uh, as he was dying. Uh, he had lung cancer, uh, and he chose to not uh, take any treatment for it, to just let it run its course. Uh, and as he was doing this, uh, he he built a house uh, that was perfect for a birder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had many, many windows. Uh, and he, uh, he found delight in the project, even though he knew he wouldn't live to, to enjoy it. Uh, just the act of making something so wonderful uh, gave him a sense of optimism. Uh, and my sister, on whose farm he built the house, uh, found that, uh, that she often thought about her father when she would uh, go into it. That's such a poignant story. Julia, do you have a website that we can share? Yes, we do. It's juliacameronlive.com. juliacameronlive.com. Very good. Now, Julia, I heard you speak, I think, a couple of years ago at the International New Age Trade Show. You gave a wonderful talk. And one of the comments that you made has stuck with me. You said, woo-woo is the new normal, or something to that effect. And I was delighted to read in your book that not only are you asking questions of yourself, but you're getting answers from somewhere. Tell us about that. Well, one of the things that I believe is important to do is to ask for guidance and trust that you receive it. So when I write, uh, very many times at night, I will write LJ for little Julie, uh, and then I'll say, please guide me. And then I'll listen and write down what I hear. Uh, And very often what I hear is a sort of calm, gentle, supportive voice. Uh, And uh, I find that the the guidance uh, is reliable. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about little Julie, are you assuming that that's your inner child, your higher self? Yes. Mm -hmm. And... Have you done more extensive channeled writing? Well, I I write prayer books. I've written five prayer books. Uh, and I find when I sit down to write a prayer that I feel myself in contact with a larger source. Uh, and so uh, a lot of times I have, I have a prayer book now called Prayers to the Great Creator, Uh, and it's 650 pages long, many, many prayers. Uh, And I read those prayers at night, and I think, who wrote that? (laughs) How wonderful. I never knew that. What Are you writing uh, another one at the moment? I just finished a book, which I call Life Lessons, Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, it's short bullet-length prayers, uh, and I found myself uh, saying to myself, 
gee, I wonder if these prayers are too brief. They're very condensed. Uh, and I turned the book into my publisher, and I said, I'm worried that the prayers might be a little too brief. And he said, oh, Georgia, this is the age of Twitter. <laughs> is this Joel Fotinus? Yes, Joel Fotinus is my publisher. A wonderful man. He is wonderful indeed. I interviewed him about his book, actually, last year. How might someone who is just beginning on the creative recovery path proceed? Do they need community around them? Do they need, can they do it themselves? Well, I think uh, the, the toolkit can be worked solo. So if you have a book, you, the stories in the book give you a sense of community. Uh, and I think uh, that if you do start doing the tools in the book, you are also led to make a more conscious community. Uh, I, I talk about uh, the kind of people who are positive, and I believe they're called believing mirrors, uh, and they reflect back to you your possibility and your strength. Uh, and then there are people called crazy makers, <laughs> uh, and crazy makers make everything seem impossible. You also point out that you yourself can be a crazy maker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you ever been a crazy maker for yourself? Um, I I think uh, that I sometimes procrastinate, uh, and that's a pretty potent form of crazy making. Uh, and I found myself uh, saying to myself, oh, Julia, just begin. And that's where the title of the book comes from. Uh-huh. It's never too late to begin again. Now, other ways that we can sabotage ourselves is by uh, our doubts and our skepticism. Um, are we are we worthy? Um, our, our need to create something perfect. How do we overcome those blocks? All right, again, here we go one more time back to morning pages uh, where we're talking about uh, writing imperfectly. Uh -huh. uh, you write whatever crosses your mind. It might be, I forgot to call my sister back. I didn't buy kitty litter. Uh, I, I, the car has a funny knock in it. I didn't like the way Joseph talked to me at the office yesterday. So uh, you skip topic to topic to topic. Uh, and as you do so, you're, you're going to find that your inner sensor perks up and starts criticizing you. Uh, and you've learned that there's no wrong way to write morning pages. So in effect, you say to your sensor, Thank you for sharing, and I'll just keep going. Uh, and when you keep going, uh, your sensor uh, becomes discouraged, uh, and it, it stops fighting you so strongly. Uh, and I think that uh, people find uh, a sense of hope uh, and a, a sense of adventure uh, as they move past their sensor. 
hope and adventure are what gives life juice, what gives life color. That is such a valuable thing to be able to recover. What about our our concept of God? Does that play a role here? Well, I think uh, that I have been told that morning pages are, quote, the portal to faith. Uh, and that as we begin to write morning pages, we are in effect sending out a, a signal uh, as, as if you're on a life raft in the middle of the ocean and you're asking to be rescued. And you say, this is what I like, this is what I don't like, uh, and here's exactly where I am and here's exactly what I feel. Uh, and many times uh, we have, uh, before you do morning pages, if you're asked how you feel, you would say, I feel okay. Uh, and what I say is, what does okay mean? What do you really mean when you say, I feel okay? You mean you feel encouraged, discouraged, cheerful, sad? Uh, what, is, what is the actual feeling uh, that you have? Uh, and when you are accurate in describing how you feel, you you realize that there is uh, a larger force uh, that is striving to contact ourselves back. And this is where the artist states come in. Uh, and you begin to feel a sense of optimism. Uh, and I think uh, that your concept of a higher power Often, uh, when people start the work, they have a, a punitive God concept. Uh, they believe that God is judgmental, uh, harsh, stern, uh, perhaps all-knowing, but, but perhaps not very forgiving. Uh, and then as they work with the tools, uh, they begin to realize, oh, here's here's something optimistic, uh, and they, they start to shift their God concept so that by the time people have been working with the tools for 12 weeks, they have a great sense of solidity uh, and safety uh, and a, a, a sense that their higher power uh, is perhaps much more accessible uh, than they had previously realized. So as we come to the end of our uh, conversation today, Julia, what final thought or urging, I know, morning pages, would you leave with our listeners? You're exactly right. I would tell people to do morning pages. Uh, I would say, just try three pages daily, longhand writing, uh, and you will have a spiritual awakening. What I did like about the, the very end of your book was the idea of the wish list. Why don't we leave them with that? Well, I think it's a very potent tool. Uh, I, I say number from 1 to 25 and say, I wish, I wish, I wish. Uh, and your wishes will range from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, but what they do is they put you in direct contact with the voice of your soul. And your soul has yearnings and desires. Uh, and as you acknowledge them, 
uh, you gain a sense of strength. Well, I can't recommend this book too much for anyone. Actually, you don't have to be retired. But if you're looking for more juice in your life to connect to your creativity, this is the book to get. It's never too late to begin again. Discovering Creativity and Meaning at Midlife and Beyond by Julia Cameron. And Julia, your website again is? JuliaCameronLive.com. JuliaCameronLive.com. Thank you, Julia. Thank you so much for your book and for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Goodbye.